she walks up to the front door. It's nighttime. No one else is on the street. She sort of looks over her shoulder, almost that feeling like being watched. Puts the key in the front door of her apartment. It's a flat, really. She's in London. Walks into the house, turns on the light, goes to the kitchen, pours a glass of water. Goes from the kitchen to the bedroom, sets the water down on the nightstand, and the camera kind of pans back a little bit. And now you can see the whole room. She's in there alone. And the camera angle switches several times, and you see it from different places. And and as she goes over to the bedside table and sits down on the edge of the bed, you see from underneath the bed, and you see nothing but her feet as she reaches down and takes off her shoes. I was watching this detective show, a British detective show, and, um, and I know that this is the opening crime that's about to be the predicate for the rest of the, the program. I had to go at this a couple times because right when they started showing underneath the bed, I had to shut off the TV. It was too much. I couldn't take it. And so I waited a day and I came back and I went at it again. Um, and, and this time I turned it on and I started over. I kind of got through that part. And, and they're looking under the bed. And I yelled to her, he's under the bed, you know. Don't go to sleep. Look under the bed. But she didn't listen to me and um, crawls into bed and turns off the light. And the next thing you know, the camera pans out from her face to show her looking down upon the bed. And there he comes, crawling out from underneath the bed. And I screamed, um, and she didn't listen, you know. This is what's, I knew this was going to happen. I knew he was under the bed. They always are under the bed. When was the last time, though, you looked under the bed before you got into it? It's been a long time, hasn't it? I mean, when you were six, of course, every time you checked under the bed, right? They, they were always monsters lurking under the bed, but they've long since moved out, and you have grown accustomed to not looking under there at all. You don't give it. The only thing that goes under the bed are dust bunnies, maybe a novel, a pair of slippers. You know the few things that are under there, and so you never look. When I was a kid, um, my mother would um, would occasionally tell us, my brother and I, to go clean our room. And we always, I always shared a room with one of my brothers. Um, I, I perhaps lamented this before, but why not do it again in public? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 47 years old, and I've never had my own room, all right? So um, <laughs> always sharing a room with somebody, right? And, and so um, when I was a boy, I was always sharing with one or other brother. And, uh, and so I would have to go up and, and clean the room. And uh, we would just move stuff, you know, around a little bit and then run outside. And she would come out and say, I said, go clean your room. Now, the room's still not clean. At which time we would run upstairs and we would take everything we could and shove it into the closet and close the door. And then the, what's left, you pushed under the bed, right? This is where it goes, under the bed, because no one ever looks under the bed. That's the way we cleaned. Um, I've learned since then that uh, that there's more that goes into cleaning than just cleaning under pushing everything under the bed. Uh, uh, kids don't understand orderliness and cleanliness. They find no reason. They, they, if you're a child, there's no reason why your room needs to be clean. There's no reason why toys don't need to be scattered all over the yard. I mean, this is the way things... Macaroni and cheese on the chair? Who cares, right? I mean, a little peanut butter on the counter never hurt anybody. You know, you don't find these to be problematic situations at all. But parents do. 
And I think it's because there's so much chaos in life that we think that cleaning things up and keeping them tidy at least adds a little bit of orderliness to our world. You know, we can at least control that little bit of environment. I've grown up. You would not believe it sometimes, but I have. I have managed a little bit of adult behavior in my life, and that is that I can kind of help keep things neat. You know, I can I can look and say, hey, kid, that, that blanket doesn't go on the floor, or pick up those earbuds and put them away, or, you know, that sort of thing. But I don't always, like, see things the way other people see them, which is that there's two types of clean. There is everyday clean, and then there is company is coming clean. Do you know these two different types, right? There's the company is coming clean, which is a different kind of clean. Um, this is a... This is when my inner child comes out and I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, we're not doing this, are we really? And um, and my wife will, you know, maybe give me a job to do. Like, I'm doing this and you go do that and, and make sure you vacuum under the sofa. What? You know, vacuum under the sofa? Yeah, under the bed? You probably want me to clean under the bed as well. Yeah, clean under the bed. This is absurd. What kind of friends do we have that are going to come and look underneath our sofa to see what's underneath there? But this is what you do when you get ready for company to come, don't you? It's not just the the surface cleaning. You have to clean everywhere, even under the bed. You leave no stone unturned. In fact, if there's a stone, you take it outside, right? They don't belong in the house to begin with. This This is company's coming kind of clean. In the gospel lesson today, we have, um, we have John out in the back country of Israel. He's not in the city. He's, he's, he's out removed. He's open air preaching. We kind of see this as we come along. And John is a bit of an odd fellow. He wears a coat cut out of camel's hair and a leather belt tied around his waist. Um, this was 2,000 years ago, and I think that most of us see this image from like a television program or something and think, well, this is the way people... No, 2,000 years ago, people still knew how to sew clothing, right? They knew how to make respectable clothing. He's wearing this handmade garment that looks really rough. And John is not a farmer or a hunter. He lives in caves out in the wilderness, which means that his diet consists of things that he can forage, like vegetables that grow wild and... Insects, locust, Matthew says. Maybe a bit of wild honey here or there for a little bit of a tasty treat. But there's something genuine about John, something that people get. There's something real and authentic about him that he gave up, perhaps, an easier life, a life with a fine home, an honorable life. He gave up everything for sincere beliefs to follow God and to be an authentic preacher for him. He may not have been the life of the party, somebody you wouldn't necessarily want to invite for a good time, but he was true, he was honest, he was genuine. And here we are out in the countryside with this bird's eye view of John preaching, crowds gathered, people coming to hear him. His sermons were um, were fiery, you know, sin and repentance, fire and judgment. But they also had this in common. His, his sermons were about the coming of Yahweh, Israel's God. He's on his way. He's coming soon. You better get ready. We better get ready because Yahweh is on the way. He's coming. He's like the guy walking around with the placard on his you know, chest as he's on the street corner. The, the end is near or nigh. <laughs> I think John's is the beginning is near. Things are about to start. 
On the one hand, he seems clearly, um, oh, disturbed. But on the other hand, he's clearly genuine as well. And so people go to hear this. They go to give him a careful listen. And in fact, he even draws the attention of some very notable people. Did you hear the lesson today? The Pharisees and Sadducees, they're almost never linked together in Scripture. And yet here they are. They come out to hear John as well. Uh, the, uh, the text says, uh, Matthew says that in, the, in your uh, bulletin, but when he saw many of the Pharisees, he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. That is a horrible translation. It is not coming for baptism. That's not what, what Matthew says in his, his ancient Greek at all. He actually uses a different preposition. They were coming upon his baptism or they were coming uh, on his baptism. They came to see it. They came to be a spectator not a participant. They came to see what was going on, not to participate in it. You could even use the translation that they came against his baptism. Probably not so strong as that, but at least that they did not come to participate. These people are very religious people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees control the temple. They control the liturgy of uh, of the people's worship. The Pharisees are like rabbis. You know, they're like... um, And they're even more than that. They're like religious police inspecting everybody's behavior on the streets. These people are uber religious. They are the most religious of all the religious people in the community. You don't get any more religious than them. And they come to see what John is up to. He is unmoved by their religiosity. In fact, he insults them at the very beginning. They come to see what he's doing, and he looks at them, and he calls them. Did you hear it? You brood of vipers. You snake babies. I don't know how snake babies comes across in your neighborhood. Um, It it probably would have made people chuckle in mine as well. Snake babies, though, that's a really bad insult. In in Middle Eastern sensibilities, even to this day, snakes are, are viewed as really disgusting because they crawl upon the dust of the ground. They're in the dirt. If you're in the Middle East and you're, you're visiting somebody who's a, 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 you know, a native there, do not lift your foot and place it on your knee like we do here. Because if they see the sole of your shoe, it is a terrible insult to them. You remember when the statue of Saddam was torn down in Baghdad. What did the people do? They ran up, took off their shoes, and began to beat it with the bottom of their shoe. Because this is a terrible way to insult somebody. Snakes crawl along the dust. John calls the Pharisees and Sadducees, you snakes. What's worse is the most famous snake in all the Bible appears very early. Do you remember this? In the Garden of Eden. You filthy devils is what John calls these super religious people. Who warned you? Who warns you to flee the wrath that is to come? That's what he says. Judgment's on its way. And then he says this, bring forth fruit that's worthy of repentance. Now, you know what this metaphor means, of course. This is, this is talking about deeds, actions, right? The way that they're to live. Bring forth the stuff that's real. Talk is cheap. Let's see real fruit, real deeds that are worthy of repentance. John's message is this. The judge is on the way. 
He's coming. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to look under the sofa. He is. He's going to look under the bed. He's going to check those curtains to see how clean they are. Who cleans curtains? He's going to do all of this. The king is coming. He gave up a life of comfortable religion. John did for a cave and handmade clothes. He gave up a, a, a you know, a diet of hummus and warm pita bread. Um, you know, perhaps some lamb here and there and some baklava. I'm sure they had baklava in the first century. I'm not sure. Anyway, he gave up all of that for what? You know, a diet of, of locusts and perhaps a dab of wild honey here and there. He was unmoved by religious pretense. He comes to us every Advent season. John does the second and third weeks. And he says to us the same thing every year. Funny how that works. The king is coming. Get ready. The king is coming. And he's going to judge us. He's going to look at our lives and he's going to look to see what is there true righteousness or is there just the pretense of religion? He wants to know, are we ready to turn away from sin and turn to righteousness? He wants to know how we treat people, especially the poor, the needy, the most vulnerable among us. He wants to know if we resist the values of this world and cling to true virtue. How do we feel about pride versus humility, greed versus generosity, meekness versus guile? How do we feel about these things? Because John is unimpressed with religiosity and he's only concerned with authenticity, with true piety, true devotion. Um, all of this got me thinking this week about the, uh, the old, um, the old uh, general confession prayer in the 28 uh, prayer book and in the 1662 prayer book. I don't know if any of you remember it, but it went like this. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a hard prayer, isn't it? I mean, it kind of gets right at this, this issue of confession. It goes on to plead for mercy and for grace to amend our lives. We have a version of the same prayer we still use today. I mean, and it's very good and solid. There's something about Elizabethan English, though, that sort of kind of catches the ear, I think. Shuv. Repentance in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Shuv. It means to do a U-turn, to go the opposite direction, to be going one way and to turn around and go another. Metanaeo in, in Greek the word that shows up in Matthew's uh, text here, to have a different way of thinking, to change your mind, to have an afterthought. I was reading um, some more uh, Old English this week. Uh, John Wesley, I don't know if you know John Wesley, was an Anglican priest in the 18th century. Lived almost the entire 18th century. (laughs) The guy was born in like 1803 and lived till 1891. I mean, he was a a long span of the 18th century. And he wrote prolifically. um, Journals and essays and letters and sermons. And I was reading the preface to a collection of sermons this week. And I just want to share it with you. He, he He wrote this. 
to candid and reasonable people. I'm not afraid to lay open what have been the inmost thoughts of my heart. I have thought I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow passes through the air. I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. Till a few moments hence, and I am no more seen. Lived almost a century. Just a few moments. Just live in a few moments. And then I'm seen no more. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing. (laughs) This is what Wesley says. I want to know one thing. The way to heaven. How to land on that safe and happy shore. God himself hath condescended to teach me the way. For this very reason, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. He goes on to say, I want to be homo unis libri, a man of one book. Now, this is a guy who read everything they had on the shelves in Oxford. A scholar who could, who could read Greek and Hebrew and Latin when he was 10 years old. And he said, you know what? Of all the things I've read, I want one book. Just one. And I want to model my life after that book. I realize I too am a creature. A creature of a day, passing as an arrow through the air. As are you. And the question for all of us is where will we land? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.